it's the moment that I realized I'm done. Investors are not the smartest people in the room and I know what I'm doing and I'm not going to be treated this way ever again. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In the show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful. What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller Podcast. I'm so excited as I always am, to share this episode with you. If you hear something in the backyard, (laughs) there's literally like, it sounds like a thousand frogs are behind my house. And so I don't know if you'll hear them in the background while I'm recording a little piece of this, but if you hear anything like that, that is indeed what it is. There's like so many frogs and like our neighbor has so many frogs and they're like every single night when we're when we're trying to do stuff and like when we're about to go to bed like every single night and like in like the afternoon our neighbor has frogs and maddie why don't you say hi for a second you're never on this show did you do anything special today i did pottery oh were you good at it yeah (laughs) do you want to say anything at all Uh, about life or anything at all? I'm six. I'm in kindergarten. I'm moving away. You are? <laughs> okay. Forget it. All right. Well, you're going to really enjoy today's episode. So let me dive into that now. Christina Stumble is here with us. She's the founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers, which I've been loving for 
so many years. The flowers are absolutely stunning. I think you'll really enjoy the story of how she turned this little seed of an idea into a multi-million dollar business with no outside investment. And now it's grown to an unbelievable team that continues to disrupt and innovate the floral industry, sending hundreds of thousands of flower bouquets every year. It's the only large-scale female-founded and predominantly female-run e-commerce flower company. And you should really go check out their flowers because they're beautiful. I've been sending their bouquets as thank you gifts for the longest time. And every time I do, the people who receive it write me back and say, oh my gosh, these really are so beautiful. In fact, I just got an email this week from Julia Cameron because I had sent her the flowers and she really, really did appreciate them so much. So if there's someone special in your life, you might want to go check out Farm Girl Flowers because you'll be delighted. It was such a joy talking to Christina. She has so much resilience and just so much good stuff to share. She makes so many important points in this episode about bootstrapping and branding and leadership. So there's a lot of value packed into the conversation. Without further ado, please welcome the extraordinary Christina Stemble. This is really cool because I am a fan, not because you're on the show, but because I actually, I send people your stuff all the time. Thank you. I, just, I just love the look of it. I love the feel of it. I like how different it is. And my love language is gift giving. So it's like a perfect fit. So I'm really happy to have you here. So Christina, why don't you start off and tell us where you feel like the seed, no pun intended, but where was the seed of this dream? Can you look back at your childhood and see any clue that lets you know that you might wind up doing this? No, um, there was clues that I knew I wanted to do something that I would consider big, but I didn't know what growing up on that corn and soybean farm in Indiana. I had no idea, like no idea that I could ever start a company. You know, I didn't get bit by that bug really until uh, I moved to San Francisco and I saw everybody starting companies and using fancy words like disruption and you know things like that. And Right. Know, what's that about? Get yeah, me in on that. Totally. Um, but I didn't go to college. I don't have like the typical background that most people have. You know, I grew up on a corn and soybean farm where gender roles were still really prevalent. And, you know, my brother was expected to go to college, but my sister and I were expected to have get married and have kids. And that was just introductory. And I know it sounds like it's like Little House in the Prairie or something, but stuff like that still exists in rural areas in the United States. And so of that's, you know, what my expectation was. And I knew I didn't want that but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I just would go work weird, you know, odd jobs and worked in hospitality, worked in event planning, worked in things like that. And then I would just move my you know, way up through the hard work. But from all of those jobs, I learned so much that helps me now today that I'm grateful for. But Isn't I just- that amazing, by the way, how you look back and things that might've been seemingly out of the way or a waste of quote unquote time turn out to be- you can find the value and how it serves you later on. Absolutely. I mean, I've managed so many people in right. management. Like nobody starts a company because they want to manage people, but that's no. what you do <laughs> all day long. Um, it's not about the product or anything like that. It's about just managing people. And so I learned a lot from that. So, you know, really the seed was planted when I moved to San Francisco and I knew I wanted to start a company, but I had no idea what, what area. And it wasn't the story of me like frolicking in my grandmother's garden. And I think that's important for women because a lot of times we the story becomes that you, you know, you're so lucky you must have turned that hobby into a business. And that wasn't the case at all. I knew I wanted to start a company. I knew I wanted to be in a sector that could grow really big. And Farm Girl was the first idea I had that checked all of the boxes and I could bootstrap it, which was really important. Well, how the heck did you do it? I mean, it's one thing to have a thought, but it's another thing to actually see it come to life. So where were you when you even had the awareness that you wanted to start a 
floral business? Like where did that thought find you? Um, I was working at Stanford university and one of the departments I oversaw did the events and I saw how much money we would spend on flowers. And this is during the economic downturn of like, Oh, eight. And we had to cut our budgets. And so I just started researching. It took me down this rabbit hole of research into the floral industry in general to be like, why do flowers cost so much? And then I quickly pivoted to, you know, why do flowers suck online? Like all the (laughs) options that, you know, I would order from my mom. And so I was like, I could fix this. And there was nobody in recent years had really tackled this industry, which was unheard of, especially in the Bay area where I lived when everything had been disrupted. Um, now I know why, because it's perishable and it's really, really, really hard. <laughs> so that's why, but I didn't know I was really naive back then. So I thought I could do this. How hard could it be? I can do this. Well, you did go ahead, <laughs> but it was just like, just doing it. I actually think that's like the key when everyone's like, what's the secret sauce. It's just doing it. It's literally just doing it. It's jumping off the edge of that cliff, quitting your very stable job at Stanford to say, I'm not going to keep my day job. I'm just going to take the leap and see if it works and not be afraid of failure. You know, I mean, it was pretty much probably, I gave it a 50-50 shot. I was like 50%, I'll make it 50%, I won't, but I'll learn a lot and I can check that box that I tried and then I'll go on to something else, you know? That's a lot of guts. And so you did that, you (laughs) quit your job. Yep. Quit my job. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. And I could feel the, both the excitement and also the stakes that were high. And so then what did you do next? Yeah. A lot of people prefer to keep their job and do a side hustle. Yeah. I did not. Cause I kept saying I was going to do that. And I never did. That was that person that will turn a 40 hour job, any 40 hour job into an 80 hour job, you know? So there's no way to start a side hustle. So I was like, you know what? I need that fire in my belly. I need the like no paycheck to pay my rent. I need that in order to like really make this a go. And so I quit my job in June of 2010. I thought I was going to launch in August. Of course, it took a little bit longer to get the website and everything going. Um, I launched November 7th of 2010. Wow. I had $49,000 in my bank account and that was for farm girl and for me to live off of. And they're pretty much the same thing because it was all in one apartment too. And I just taught myself everything, like how to make a flower arrangement. I go to the flower mart at three in the morning and buy flowers and YouTube videos and took Linda classes on how to build a financial model and just did everything and had a friend that built a website for me for, I think $4,000, which I was like, that's like a lot of my 49,000, you know, (laughs) that was the biggest expense. And yeah. And then gave myself two years or until I ran out of money, which those kind of coincided almost the same time, a year and a half, I was down to $411 was the lowest I ever got in my bank account. And you had some scary times. And my landlord found out I was running an illegal business from my dining room and there was a pink slip on my door. And so I had to move that out within two weeks. Just the crazy story you look back on and it sounds really crazy, but when you're just doing it, you just tackle whatever fire, whatever's code red in front of you that day. You take the next little half step and that's what you deal with in the moment. So that's a lot of courage and a lot of creativity at the same time. It's so cool. And I love your resourcefulness. I love the, so I'll figure it out. You know, this is the project of the day. How am I going to make a floral arrangement? This is, it's so empowering to hear that because, you know, had you not had the upbringing, you just told us you had, and let's say you would have done a different path and gone to some like, I don't know, Ivy League school and then gotten a really good job that could have also been cool. And you would have been denied this like scrappy 
what's here for me to be resourceful and figure out, which is really fun. Like, I feel like we take life so seriously. And like, I look out at the world and I'm like, trees aren't serious. You know, the roosters and the koalas aren't serious. Like they're just playing. It's like, what's next? What's next? And we play as kids and then we forget to play. And one look at what you just said is that's so scary, right? Because our brains, our reptilian brains are like, I need security. And that's one aspect of life. But the other aspect of life is like, I want fulfillment. I want creativity. I want to be playing games. And that's like a great puzzle. So let's let's take that puzzle apart for a second for somebody who would want to now have a little bit of a, I guess, a, a guiding light through that process. What were some of those things you then learned? Okay, if you want to start a business out of your house, whether you're selling flowers or you're selling something else, what are some of those first few things that you do need to focus on that actually allow you to get customers and have fulfilling deliveries and all of that stuff? I think what you said is so good, <laughs> by the way. Um, I think you have to get out of your own way and have to like kind of throw out the playbook. And what I see with people that come with really like heavily pedigreed people from like, you know, I worked at Stanford before and I've hired people from Harvard Business School. And so, and what I find is those people have a really hard time at Farm Girl. And I would imagine at most true startups because they have learned this playbook and they want to tick off boxes that go down the list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And you don't launch until you have this perfect. And, you know, you have to throw all of that out and you just have to use common sense, which I know is a loaded word to say, or loaded phrase to say, but you really just have to think of how am I going to solve this problem in the cheapest way, the fastest way, whatever you need to do, but usually it's cheap and fast in a startup. And that has good quality too. So, you know, that dreaded triangle, but how am I going to do that? And you just have to solve problems continuously and not think that you have to have this playbook. So, you know, there's certain things, yes, you need to do. You need to make sure you have all your licenses in place and that you're legal, right? And things like that. And there are definitely check boxes for that. But even if you don't, you just pay some fines later on. I learned that the hard way. Because <laughs> you're not going to know all of the, you know, what license. Here I am laughing and it, my listeners might be like, La- don't laugh. That's horrible. I'm like, I don't know. Like, but I'm laughing at the sheer willingness you have to say, whatever it is, I will face it head on. And it's just like, what a concept. Imagine if we weren't avoiding, you know, being uncomfortable, what we could actually do. Yes. And if you're going to do a startup, you're going to be uncomfortable all the time. Like in 12 and a half years, I've been doing this. There has not been a day of comfort. I can say in 12 and a half years, there's always something's coming and you don't know what it is. So if you're somebody who needs certainty and to know exactly what's in front of you, don't do a startup or try to get out of your own way. And, and think about this as like, you know, you're going to have some really crappy stuff too. It's not all going to be fun, but it's just going to come and you're going to deal with it. And so you just have to be okay with that. And to say, I know tomorrow is going to bring another fire that I'm going to have to put out. And I don't know what it is, but I know right. I can do it. And so I think the thing that I think sets apart entrepreneurs, successful ones from people who cannot do that is their belief in themselves. Like I believe I can do it. I don't need other people to tell me I can do it. I don't need outside accolades or cause you're never going to get it, you know? Right. Right. Um, but I believe truly that I can do it. And I believe that whatever comes my way, you know, there might be something that comes my way that I can't. And I know that like you think of the worst case scenario, like this is us with Beth and Randall, I think when they're like, you know, what's the worst going to happen game. If you watch that, I was like, that's what you do in a startup. What's the worst that can happen. 
you know, you have a lawsuit that you can't recover from because someone, you know, a loss of life one or something like that. That's so big. No business insurance will cover it. You always know that's a possibility in front of you. And you still have to be okay putting the next foot in front of yourself and not being so scared of that outcome, the worst that could happen happening, that you are stagnant in fear, basically. I mean, what you're saying is really huge. We had this guy on the show. His name is Gino Wickman. He wrote this book called Rocket Fuel. And he apparently has like developed these nine qualities that if you have these nine you really are set out to be an entrepreneur. And if you don't have these nine, it's a much harder road. And I didn't realize, you know, because everything you're saying, I feel at ease when you speak. I actually feel energized by it, right? And I have been, you know, uh, for 20 years, as long as I can remember, even in college, like whoever I would meet, I'd be like, you can do that. You should do that. And I came to hear him say, only like 4%, he believes, 4% of the world is actually made up of these qualities, like that, that they really feel at ease with these qualities. And the, the biggest one, of course, is an appetite for risk, which is what you were just kind of saying. And it's very liberating, though, just as a concept, because what I also have found studying sort of the the spiritual realms, you know, and studying self-development is that one of the things that make us makes us happiest as people is being unattached. Mm. And so you can call it an appetite for risk, or you could actually say the willingness to be unattached, which really, and I'm not Buddhist, I'm Jewish, but I learned a little bit about Buddhism. And like, that's their thing is like, the only thing that's permanent is change. Mm-hmm. And so you learn to be with what is, and that is something that millions and millions of people in the world are practicing. Right. And so what I heard you say is really a recipe for joy because it's, it's not attached to what will happen or not. And when you're so attached to needing things to not go a certain way, yes, good luck. Cause yes. there will be so much suffering. Right. But if you kind of go in going, all right, well, this could happen Mm -hmm. and I'm going to show up for that. You know what I mean? Like, wow, that opens up a lot of life to you, right? And so it's an interesting, beautiful, it's actually a gift to hear that people can have that mentality and proceed through their life that way. And there, I find that the world that you are disproportionately rewarded when you can take that kind of a stand and look, look what's happened to you. I mean, let's fast forward and then we'll go back and we'll pick it apart again. But tell everybody, in case they don't know, they probably are aware because it's a very successful brand, but tell them what actually happened in the last many years with your brand. Yeah. So I continue to bootstrap and just a not normal in the Bay Area, especially concept of spending less than you make and reinvesting those profits back into the growth. And it was a slower trajectory, but just kept growing year over year until, you know, in 2020, we had our our largest year yet at, at 60 million in revenue. So it's no longer me making a few bouquets at my dining room table anymore. So, you know, moved out of that apartment at the insistence of my landlord, but then that took me to the next step of, you know, hiring my first team members and became a a team of 20 and then a hundred and opened up facilities in South America as well. And so now we're in North America and South America and just kept building and iterating and changing as we needed to. And, you know, COVID brought a whole slew of changes and COVID has been especially hard on every entrepreneur. But if you are the type of person that you were just describing that can be unattached, you know, we've had to swing the pendulum every which way through COVID 
and have been able to do that and still survive and be here, you know, in basically the third year. So counting at COVID years with the economy being what it is. And so we just keep changing and iterating as we need to. And I have no doubt that we'll make it through this hard year with the economy, just like we got through the hard year of being shut down during COVID and needing to change our entire distribution model and everything like that. And then needing to change our distribution model again, when we need to right size, when the vaccines came out, people weren't sending gifts anymore. And we just have grown it and iterated and I've learned so much at every step. Every time I think that I'm like, oh, I'm there. I've done it. I've built it to the, you know, we're just going to keep growing it this way. Then you're, you know, encounter a different challenge and you need to change it again. And then you learn more by doing it a different way. And honestly, like, that's what you came for. You know what I mean? Like Howard Schultz was on the show and he was not in that moment. He wasn't daily, you know, hanging out at Starbucks and he went back because he was like, this is boring. Like I like the game. I don't want to not play it, you know? And it's just like my six-year-old loves to play Uno. And whenever she wins, then she's like, oh, darn it. And I'm like, we can play again. And she's like, great. Because she doesn't really want the win as much as she wants the wins along the way of figuring it out and getting a good hand and all of that. Right. And it's like, we're just so achievement oriented that we forget that actually playing the game well is really what lights us up. And look how many times you literally just said three times. And I learned so much. I learned so much. And it's so satisfying to grow as a person, which is what happens when you're put in those situations. So it's kind of like, and if, and when you were ever in a place where you stop growing and learning what most very smart entrepreneurs do is they start another business because Mm -hmm. they are addicted to the, I want to build things, you know? So it's so fun to look at it from that standpoint. And I want to kind of, talk about three different pieces. I want to talk about the branding because I think so much of sales is really a story we're telling and you do that so well. And I won't even tell you the other two headings. Let's just start there and then we'll, we'll kind of go through it. So what have you learned about branding and what have you learned about how you have positioned this brand? Because there was so much and there is so much competition in your space And really anyone who's listening, whatever business you want to start, most likely it's been done. In fact, you want it to have been done, right? If Bobby Brown walked the makeup floor at Bloomingdale's and saw no makeup, that'd be worse than trying to like get part of the market. But tell us how you told this story better and better and why you think Farm Girl has worked as a result of the branding. Let's just look at like the branding and what you think that's done and how you, how you came up with that branding. Yeah. I didn't overthink it. Branding, it just came natural to me. And I think that that helped, honestly. I think that when we overthink things, we can turn it bad quickly. You know, the brand for Farm Girl was just me. It was just what I wanted to see, what I wanted as a consumer, what I would want to experience. And, you know, this was an industry that was filled with me. I was going after a 30-year-old female, which was me when I started it. So it wouldn't work if I was going for a 50 year old male. Let's just be real. So I was, I was definitely creating a brand story around me as a consumer, but it didn't, it wasn't overthought. It was just, I don't like what's out there. What would I like as a consumer? And then creating that. And a lot of people think that we're really good at marketing at Farm Girl. We suck at marketing, just to be really honest. It's like one of the things that we need to work on the most. We're really good at brands and re- not good at, at marketing. And You can fool it for a while with the marketing because the brand makes up for that because consumers will tell their friends, especially female consumers, if they like you, 
in your company, they will tell their friends about it, which helps you with sales, which was great. And that's also how we were able to grow it to the size that we were able to grow it without having the marketing spend that our competitors have. We're never going to beat companies that are doing over $2 billion a year in revenue on their marketing spend on their customer acquisition costs. Like, so we have to rely on brand and everybody talks about authenticity, which I find funny because they're trying so hard. That's the overthinking part, overthinking part of like having all these decks of how they become authentic as a brand when really we were just authentic as a brand because we just told the story of like, this is our real story. You know, I started this, I grew up on a farm. I started this, wanted to start a company. I'm just like any other person out there. I'm not, I'm really relatable because I am like everyone else out there. You know, I ate ramen and drank Lipton tea to save money when I was starting this. I did it for my dining room table. I am not fancy in any way. You know, I did it on a two-story walk up on Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco, you know? So I think because I'm not, a, you know, tech guys in a room trying to fake a story that's not real. The brand came pretty naturally to me just being like, this is who I am. And, you know, I think that our consumers related to that and wanted to support us with their dollars, which I appreciate so much. And, you know, I think that that's the best thing we can do as consumers is vote with our dollars and make sure that we're supporting the brands that we want to see around for a long time. And our customers have rallied around us time and time again, you know, during COVID where, you know, I did a video the day we were shut down in San Francisco and I'm like, I'm doing this video because Number one, I had to just furlough all but one of my customer service agents. And I know that we have hundreds of orders still in the system for this week, probably thousands at that point that I don't know how we're going to fulfill. And I don't have anybody that can even answer your emails on how we're going to fulfill it. So I'm going to do this video to tell you that I don't know. And I'm scared too. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And that resonated with people because I was just being real, you know? Yeah. I don't know, but I'm going to let you know as soon as I do know, but I need a second to breathe and think. It's a big thing. And I think you're right. There are people trying to like create brands. And then there are people who actually just are authentically the story is the is the real story. And I heard Gary Zukoff, he came on the show and he was saying how we believe in cause and effect. And so we we look at the cause and we point to the effect. And he said, I don't think that's actually how it is. I think intention creates the effect. Because the cause, let's say you send an email. And you say the same thing someone else said, but it's how the person says it, right? There's something in the way the message is delivered. You know, I have that all the time with my husband. He's talking to the kids. He's like, she didn't listen. And then he goes, now you talk to her. He goes, I I said the same thing. And I'm like, it's my intention. It's, she feels it differently. She's not feeling that I'm power tripping. She's feeling that I'm hearing her and yet I'm saying something. And he's like, I don't see the difference. And I'm like, okay, it's the intention, right? So is the difference, you know, yeah. that's the important part. I mean, we have these things we call LAEs, long ass emails that I write these with no filter. And they're like literally a chapter in a book long. Right. And every marketing person says, don't ever send an email like that. They're the most opened, most read it, it, like, you know, so it defies logic. It's the intention. Let's get granular for a second mm-hmm. for people who are listening and they're like, wow, you know, I would love to get anywhere. How did you get your first 10 customers? Yes. So you have to do things you don't want to do. <laughs> That's, um, I am actually an introvert, which is hard as not for, cause you have to sell yourself constantly. And so you have to get really uncomfortable with that and you have to sell yourself. You're the only employee of the company and only customer really, <laughs> you know, so you have to get really uncomfortable. So I, 
my entire marketing budget for the first two years. I had had 24 cents per unit allocated in my first financial model, which is hilarious. It was making really generic marketing cards that I taught myself in design to make and going to coffee shops all over the city. Starbucks actually was a great partner for us until they got a new district manager, but the current one would let me at their busiest Starbucks would let me put out a little small little arrangement on the bar where everybody had to wait for their drinks with little marketing cards. And I would go to 10 different neighborhoods in the city in San Francisco and do that. And it built the entire company was built on 10 neighborhood, 10 arrangements that cost me about $20 each to make at cost. And I would go back every week and I would count how many cards were taken. And if there were only like five or 10 cards taken, I'd be like, okay, got to find a different one in this neighborhood because that's too expensive for me, which is still a great, you know, <laughs> like basically $2 customer acquisition costs. But if there, most times there's like 40 or 50 cards taken, then I'd be like, okay, it's worth it for another week to do it. And I did that for two years. And I would also go, meetup was a big thing back then. So I would go look at all the meetups that had the highest RSVPs on them. And I would go to those meetups every night with a flower arrangement and cards that I would put on their like reception desks. And they would just think that they ordered them. They didn't order them. I would just be like, oh, here, I'm sorry, I'm late with your flowers, you know? And I would put them out with cards at all the reception desks at these meetups. And that's how I got all of our customers in the first two years. And we went from, I think, okay, 56,000 to 276 to 920. So I got to almost a million dollars in sales on that, those two things. Okay. I want my whole show from now on to just be about the scrappy things people do in the beginning, because (laughs) everyone seems to think that there is some strategy that once you understand the strategy, you can just push play on it, right? Like, oh, you use this hashtag, you go yeah. live at this time. You know, my business started similarly. I used to be a songwriter and I used to write music for Grey's Anatomy and Younger and Switched to Birth. I wrote songs for shows. And what did I do? I messaged the people who chose music for film and TV. They're called music supervisors. I would find their email addresses. Sometimes I would <laughs> find the wrong ones. So it would always be like, you know, Sam.smith at Universal or S Smith at Universal, and one of them would bounce back, and whatever, one of them would get through. And I would say, "Hey, I would love to bring you coffee." And so I made this PDF. It said mochas and music. I said, "Step one: Tell me what your favorite Starbucks drink is." Step two: When to bring it by, and I'll leave you with music and coffee. And fourteen people wrote back and were like, "Don't ever write me again." And fourteen <laughs> people didn't respond, and then twenty-five people were like. Okay. Well, can you bring for my assistant a macchiato, a blah, 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 half calf? I was like, sure. And I walked in pregnant. I was pregnant with my first daughter. And oh my God, I just got a text from Farm Girl Flowers right now because <laughs> I'm a very avid customer, by the way. But um, so I go in and every one of those people for the next 10 years, yeah. those were all my clients. That yeah. is how I made half a million dollars a year writing music for film and TV. And then I started transitioning into teaching people how the music business works because people would ask me and I got a music business off the ground and that I've made $2 million in the business of teaching people that business. And they're like, well, how'd you find the students? And I was like, where do they hang out? And I looked at the music venues in LA and went to the guy who booked the venues. And I said to him, Hey, James, what do you guys do on Tuesday morning in this venue? He's like, nothing. It's a bar. We come in here at night. It opens at six. I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. 
So uh, can I do a free workshop for all those musicians? And he was like, yeah, will you give me a cut of the door? And I was like, yep. And I started doing those workshops and then I rented a theater and people would eventually come to my workshop. And I'm like, there's no strategy. It's called scrappy, but really it's everything you said earlier, because you talked about courage and you talked about commitment. And when you are committed and you have courage, of course you can be scrappy, but if you don't have courage, it doesn't matter what someone tells you to do. You won't do it. There's no shortcut for the work. Like you just said too, like I hear that all the time too. Everyone thinks that they have to do this playbook of social media marketing and you're like, I can't afford it. I need to raise money to be able to do this. And I'm like, what have you done before you raise money to do that? What have you done to even prove your concept? What have you done? I know. For me, I was like, you know, what's the place where I can get the, in front of the most people is a coffee shop. It's just thinking creatively and not, you know, those people that come to me with that and like, how am I supposed to do this when I can't afford marketing? And I'm like, you're never going to make it literally in my head. I think they're never going to make it as an entrepreneur. They can't think of a single idea of how to get in front of customers other than the, the standard playbook that costs a fortune. This is so much fun. You're so great. I wasn't kidding. If most of our listeners are just going to listen to this, they're not going to watch the YouTube of it, but I literally got a text from farm girl as we were talking and I showed it to you. I mean, that's like, so on the nose but I'm really a fan. And then to meet you and find out just how cool and down to earth and how you have no idea. Cause I speak to all these entrepreneurs, what you say is so helpful. It is oxygen. You are so good at what you do. I am so excited for you because there's a line around the block of people who would love to learn from you. And so I just see the ways in which you'll continue to grow your businesses, the way in which you'll continue to affect people with like books and things that I just, it's so good. So, okay. When you just transition to talking about online for a second, I think I want to understand that a little bit because I do know you, I wasn't one of those people standing in Starbucks. So I did find you somehow through the World Wide web. So if you don't want to be that person who is so heavily, you know, having to, bankroll Facebook ads or whatever, but you're still wanting to get footing there, which you clearly did because you, you've been in top of my mind for years. What are a few of the basic things that we need to know that actually make that work more yeah. organically? Yeah. I mean, I should preface it by we were lucky and I don't use the word luck very often, but we were lucky in that, you know, we started using Facebook ads when they were cheap. No, they were really cheap. Long yeah. time ago. Yeah. 98 cents to acquire a customer was for the first year that we were doing ads. It was before all the big companies, you know, were transitioning their traditional spend to, to digital. And now with the privacy settings, that's made everything even like so hard, right? Know. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really tough. So we're now back in the spot, you know, my team and I, our mantra this year is return to startup for the reason that we're like, we need to stop with the playbook and go back to our room. And I love that. That gives yeah. me so much energy when you, when you say that, because we all have to be doing that now. We do. It worked for a bit. Now it's not. So instead of just doubling down and tripling down, why are we doing that? We need to return to startup, figure out, you know, even you know now that we're remote, I thought coffee shops again. I'm like, well, now that we have people in like how many states, like in cities, why don't we send some flowers to our people and put out an, a bouquet every week? Things like that. Where like, Can I give you another idea, Christina? Yes, I want to hear another right, right on the spot right here. Writing it down. Pick a hundred of your favorite influencers, right? Podcasters. Yep. Because 
You know what could be sitting right here on my desk? Yes, some flower arrangement, right? Yes. And if you did that, whether they, they had four weeks in a row or once, whatever, it doesn't matter. But the thing is, people watch my reels and my content and we have people who consume this. And it's like, that is so freaking smart to be like, hey, put this on your desk, a little love yep. for me. And one time I had flowers on my desk. And Ramit Sethi, who wrote the book, I Will Teach You Rich, but he was like, like flowers, those are beautiful. You like to spend money on flowers. You should be able to buy those gorgeous flowers. But he commented on it because they were so beautiful. And I don't know. I'm just thinking like, we should do that. We should make the same mentality of like, yeah. Yes. Thank you. We should do that. (laughs) I can afford to buy your flowers and I love buying them because they're so beautiful. We have to be thinking outside of just like ad sets and AdWords and social, like, you know, we need to go back to thinking outside the box again. And the thing I would say for people just starting out, what I see in my opinion, isn't the right decision for them to make is to put all of the spend into hiring a fancy agency. Uh, Yeah. And this is what almost everybody does. They're like, well, I'm not bringing somebody in house. I'm going to have an agency do it. I'm so smart. This is going to save so much money. And I'm like, 50% of your spend is going for the people that are putting those ad sets up. You can watch a YouTube video and in 15 minutes, learn how to do it yourself, at least to test it to see if it's going to work for you. Probably going to find it's not going to work anyway, but why are you spending all the money for the people to post it for you instead of just doing it yourself? It's not hard. You just watch a YouTube video. Everybody's out there showing you how to do everything. So do that instead to test the concept before you hire an agency. And then you want to spend the money. If you're doing digital ads, you want to spend the money in actually getting in front of people not on paying the 22-year-old intern that they have at this agency, putting your ads up anyway that you could have done yourself and then save the extra, say you have a $20,000 budget, don't spend 10,000 of it on the administrative side. I mean, it's just so good. And I love the realness of it. And I was curious for anybody who hasn't shopped at Farm Girl, what makes it special or what made it stand out to me was the warmth of it. I could tell right away from the messaging, the copy, and also the look and feel of the images of the flowers, they just were so different. It, the burlap little piece of fabric, and then also the type of flowers. And like, we live up in, you know, a mountain and I kind of like things that feel more organic. And so I just right away, and that's all I send. I said, we send farm flowers. And in fact, I should just reveal this. When people come on our show, we've had all these, that's what they get. Like they get farm girl. We send them farm girl flowers. We well, I need to it. give you a corporate discount. Oh my God. It's amazing. <laughs> so, yes. I'm so happy to support you. That's not why I'm so <laughs> happy to support you, but people always make a comment. These are really special. And then they start buying them. But the point is, what is it that got you there? Like with the burlap sack, like mm-hmm. the little cloth you use, yes. how did you know, because you talk about testing a lot. How did you find that signature look and feel? So I knew I didn't want plastic. So it was when I was basically doing my my checklist of common sense things of like, what do I need to start this business? Which was probably like 20 things, which really should have been 200, but I was so naive. I didn't know, you know? So I was like, I got to learn how to make flowers, you know? And then I was like, I need to learn how to wrap them. And all the wraps were either cellophane or craft paper or just very bait or like really cheesy floral print, you know, pattern stuff. And I was like, I don't like any of these that are you know, available to buy. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to come up with something different. And so I started, I made a list and I still have it. It's like a list of all these ideas of like going to Goodwills and getting denim and and cutting them up and wrapping them in, in reused denim and stuff. I was like, we could use reused textiles. We use 
chalkboard paper that you could write the recipient message on, but that looked all crinkly and gross when I put it on. So I just would try all these ideas that I had and came up with, you know, my favorite ones. And then I just sent a picture of them to my girlfriends and asked them, which one do you like the best? And burlap was one of my ideas because, you know, I grew up in Indiana where we had burlap sacks on the farm, but it was more like, you know, potato sacks and things like that. And I was like, well, you know, I could just get them from a farm or something, get them to donate them. And then I was like, California, I was like, well, there's not a lot of potato farmers here, but coffee, there was a lot of like roasters. And so I just reached out to a bunch of coffee companies in San Francisco and said, Hey, you know, do you have any extra burlap? I'm willing to buy from you. And most people didn't get back to me. Like you just said, but uh, ritual roasters, female owned, uh, they got back to me and she's like, yeah, if you come by every Thursday, we'll have them for you and donated them. Didn't even charge me. And I'd go pick them up in my, you know, 200,000 mile Nissan Xterra that I drove, you know, at the time. And I'd go pick up this burlap and haul it home and I'd cut it with scissors. And that's how I came up with the wrap. And it was hundred percent biodegradable. The only thing hemp and, and jute are the only biodegradable fabrics out there. So it was better for the environment. The last time we checked, we we're saving over a ton of plastic a year by not using plastic, which is great. In 2019, we calculated that. And so it's just much better for the environment. And it also you know, I was kind of thinking of Nike. I was like, what can I do for our flowers that will make it have like a swoosh? Like where people, you know, social media was just starting. I was like, if they don't see the the little tag, brand tag, how are they going to know it's Farm Girl? And I was like, what's something different than any other company that I've seen? Everything that I've done, like even with starting Farm Girl, one of the biggest drivers I had and what kind of business I wanted to start was I didn't want to just copy someone else's. I definitely wanted it to be an industry already, like to the makeup point with Bobby Brown, wanted there to be an industry already. And I, I agree with you fully that we need to stop looking at as competition. I talked to the CEOs of a lot of flower companies, our competitors. You know, I think that we all help each other by creating a bigger market together, people wanting, wanting flowers and wanting whatever you're selling. So, but you know, I wanted it to stand out. Everything I want to do is I want to innovate on it. I don't want to just copy someone else. I want to do something new and different and better. And so I thought everybody's using cellophane. What can I do that will make ours better? And that's where the burlap was born. And then everything was like that. The pins that we put in the boxes was just like, how do we tell our story better? And and those are the things that resonate with people. They want to hear the story behind it. They want to feel like there's actually real people, not machines, whatever. There's real people making these bouquets. And they're it's so great to hear that story that not only it's a female run business. They donated them to you. And then you saved all of that plastic that you didn't have to like kill the environment. And that was such a smart question because you're right. When you see the photo of it online, it's distinguishing, you know, it's that little swoosh and it's just great. And what do I love? I'm like, how did you know? You're like, I showed my girlfriend's pictures. I mean, we make it so much harder than it has to be. It's like, have you just done any kind of testing at all, like show it to 10 friends. Like that could be it. That's yeah. all you might need to do. You don't might not yeah. need a whole focus group. What do you feel in your life separate from the business business? Like just looking at how much you've grown as a person and how much you've allowed expansion in your life. Like what do you feel internally had to change about you to let your life be more because a lot of times people have limiting beliefs and they don't feel worthy of like having success. Mm -hmm. And so they don't see it. It doesn't happen. It's like, there's a part of them. I mean, I know so many women who will talk about who am I to charge for this? So they'll just be the person who like volunteers at school or at church. And they can't even imagine letting themselves get paid to do things that they do so well, whether it's event planning or 
you know, matchmaking or anything, accounting, anything. Oh, I volunteer. I do. I, I, you know, yeah, I lose sleep to do this for my church, but I will, who am I to get paid? You know what I'm trying to say? There's an yeah. internal We're conditioned on as women though. We are definitely conditioned that way. And we shouldn't do that to each other. Like that's why I've never asked any, like for free. I know like we should be paying each other for our time and our products. And I've never seen a man feel guilty for what they sell ever. So how do you feel you internally? Like what have you done? Like, what do you think has helped you personally just allow more success and more leadership and more power and strength to kind of foster in you? It hasn't been anything outside like that, but there's definitely been a trajectory of a lot of changes. And that's just been 12 and a half years of doing this and having the learning from what hasn't worked has caused me to change what hasn't worked into what will work. And even this year, you know, I'm making a pretty big change in my leadership style consciously because what I was doing wasn't working. And early on, I definitely felt, you know, I hated the word imposter syndrome, but I definitely felt like I wasn't good enough. I knew I could do whatever I set my mind out to, but no one else believed that around me. And so I felt like I had a chip on my shoulder all the time where I was like, I'm going to qualify everything. Like, no, no, I'm successful. Like I had to like tell you I'm successful. Like, because, you know, I got 104 no's from investors where all of our male competitors that had strikingly similar companies to us were able to go raise like 10 million pre-revenue. So I was just feeling like every event I would go to, people would ask like, you know, oh, who invested? And I'm like, we're bootstrapped. And now bootstrap has a, a bit of a, a badge of honor to it now, but back then, no, you know, like everyone's like, Oh, it's easy to get investment. I'm like, no, well, hasn't been for me. And so I felt very much like I wasn't good enough in some respects. And there was actually a, a pivotal moment when I was sitting in a room with investors that had just not treated me well at all. Like they had me fly across the country the day before I had a national commercial that I had to shoot, but I was going and doing this anyway, because it's the only day they could meet. And then they weren't even prepared for the meeting. And in the first 10 minutes of the meeting, they're like, oh, this isn't a good investment for us. They hadn't even looked at the pre-deck, nothing. You know, and I was sicker than a dog, literally it's like 103 degree fever. And I was sitting there and I actually teared up and I, I don't cry, but because I was so angry, I was literally livid. I was like, I have, I've slept two hours. I'm going to go back and do a national commercial for the company that I need to be ready for, that I'm not going to be ready for now because of this, I'm sicker than a dog. I did all of my work and you couldn't even like have the you know respect for me to open up the deck before making me fly across country. And oh. it was the moment that I realized I'm done. Investors are not the smartest people in the room and I know what I'm doing and I'm not going to be treated this way ever again. And I'm done. See how those awful things wind up becoming a blessing because the water has to boil so hot that you get the memo and you're like, oh, there's no, yeah, they're there. I'm out. I'm out. I've never looked at investors the same way as God figures that people seem to think of them as. They just are spending other people's money and they've never done this themselves. Most of them have sat behind spreadsheets and never like actually done the work, which is way different than a spreadsheet as we know, because I can make a spreadsheet look any way I want it to. And I've never looked at them the same way. And I've never looked at myself the same way. Like I'm not good enough. I know I'm good enough. I've done this. It's crazy. I feel like this should be an entire podcast in and of itself, but Tamara Mellon was here on the show and talking about how you know she started Jimmy Choo. Like that's her brand. Jimmy Choo was a man who helped her build her idea, right? He was the 
I think it's called a cobbler. That's what they call a shoe person. I think that's the official name. But anyway, she was the only woman on the inside of that business. And she wound up having to leave her own company because there was no respect for her. And it's so not okay. I was just talking with a friend who is uh, in the C-suite of a, a startup and she's a woman. And she said, we have to stop talking about things where we say, you know, women are not making up as much of the CEO. She said, because it's a race to the middle. She's like, how hard it is to get from the middle to the top when you are a woman is what nobody wants to talk about. It is a thing. Like trying to get venture capital when you're a woman, it's a totally different story. And it's a boys club. Like 8.8% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are women. And just the amount of VC money that's being given to women, it's like- Less than 2%. Yeah, it's insane. The lowest ever Meanwhile, women make amazing CEOs. Like they're saying, Mm -hmm. like the ROI, you know, everything is like just heads and shoulders because we're very relationship oriented. Let's talk about that for a second, which is being in leadership. Because as you said, nobody starts a business to run a business. That is always the part of me where I get the most like hung up and tired is how can I not over-function with my team? How can I be loving, but not overly giving? And how can I be respected if I'm wanting to be liked all the time? Like, you know, being a woman, I want to be liked so badly. I want everyone to be okay that I then sometimes don't say, here's what I need. You know, how have you found some problems along the way that, now you would know the answer to. Do you know what I mean? Like what's a mistake or something that you could point out that we might all encounter that you're like, okay, if this happens, here's what I've learned I would do differently or that I now I'm doing differently. There's two things really that I focus on now. One is it goes to the attachment, like not being attached to the outcome of them liking me. The other one is is caring about people, but not caring what they think of me. And I have... (sighs) to think about that constantly with my team, because what happens a lot, I I find with women and what happened with myself is that I cared so much what people thought of me that I didn't hold them accountable for their job, uh, which isn't fair to everyone else either. So when I think about it in terms of this isn't about me, it's literally about what I owe everyone else at the company is this person doing their job well, right? We're not a big company. There's no fat. And if 10% of of our team is not performing their duties well, it's going to impact the other 90%. And you're going to spend all your time on a 10%, of course, right? 90% is 10% of the problems that are going on. But I grew up in a household where we had no conflict. We weren't allowed to have conflict basically. And so the hardest thing for me has been to develop a skill of direct communication. And I think it's, you know, like Brene Brown says, clear is kind, right? Like you know, I think it's the kindest thing I can do is to be very direct with my team, not expect them to read my mind and give them direct feedback. And sometimes I can't give them as direct feedback as I want, you know, because, you know, you have to worry about legal things and stuff like that, which I hate that part. Because yeah. sometimes I just want to be like, you know what, I'm going to sit you down and tell you like, no, when you behave this way in meetings, this is how you come across, you know, things like that. But you have to be careful of stuff like that, which that's a whole nother side. But, you know, I do care about every person on my team but I no longer care if they like me. I want them to respect me. And I don't think anyone would say that they don't respect me. There might be people on my team that say they don't like me. Those are usually the people that are being held accountable for not doing their job at the level they need to do their job. And you become the scapegoat for that. And that's okay. That's a normal, natural reaction, I think, 
for people. But if I don't, I'm jeopardizing the other 90% of my team that's busting their butt and doing a great job. I'm risking their jobs by not holding that 10% accountable. Yeah. It's so clarifying when you say this, because what we think we're doing to be nice or to like not rock the boat, rocks the boat for everyone else. Yeah. So it's like, who are you serving? Right. If you're in a position and you don't feel whatever it is that you can be clear or that you can keep selling or whatever it is, you can't pay more people. You don't have a thriving business. You you actually just hurt everybody because you decided to not step into what is your integrity. And that just can't be up for discussion. No. You know, I afraid to have the hard conversation, which is usually what it is, right? Like it's uncomfortable. My stomach hurts before it, but you just got to do it. You got to eat the frog. <laughs> you just got to do the hard things. I know? know. I've only recently started to become willing to do that. And it's a really cool thing. And it's really cool in the business too, because what I've learned is I tell the girls on our team, the women on our team, listen, we don't want every customer. We actually want to qualify the person before they even walk in. Yep. You know what I mean? It's better to have, be very clear. You know, when you walk into Gucci or Cartier, or just using that as an example, you're very clear yep. what is probably about to happen. Like you're not <laughs> totally surprised that there's nothing less than $500 in the store. And that's, yep. it's helpful. Just be clear. Like that's what it is. Just be clear. Like wasting time going in there thinking you're gonna get something for 50 bucks. You know, right. so, you're wasting yeah. people's time. Like just be in your integrity and it's okay. And there's other people who, you know, I think about it all the time. Like we have a small team and if something isn't working, I'm like, oh my God, not everybody has to want to be here. I just need like a few people to do this yeah. role. That's it. Like out of the whole billions of people, like not everybody has to be on board with anything I do, but the people who are here need to be, yes. and that's an okay thing to want. Yep. I think it's harder for women because the expectation is that we're nice. And so I do think that we unfairly get, you know, like there's, there's people that write really horrible glass door reviews about me and stuff. And it's literally because they don't think I'm nice, but my job isn't to be nice. You know, I'm not, not me never, but my job is to be a leader for this company. And that's what I'm doing. A male CEO would say the same thing as a female CEO to an employee, to a team member and see what the response would be. It's a very different, we're just supposed to be nice instead of be strong leaders. And that's just not going to happen. <laughs> I think well, that- the more we're aware of it and yeah. we can just call it out in the room, yeah. I just feel like it's so good for everyone to just say it out loud. Like we're held to a, such a different standard. Can we just be aware? And to notice, to recognize it, you know, like I'll talk to male friends about it and they, some of them come back and been like, I noticed it in my own company. Cause you know, I, I was telling so, you know, I had a male general manager and a female general manager of the same facility. And the female was a much better general manager than the male, much better, just handled things much better. And the male was respected so much more. Everyone complained about the female. And I was like, she's doing a much better job than the male, but the male silver hair, Harvard business school, like there's a, a element of respect just given naturally without being earned where the woman did not have that at all. <laughs> Very, very frustrating. And I just read, this is a fun fact, that Judge Judy is like the highest paid person on TV. And I'm like, good for her. That's awesome. That is so awesome. Paving the way, paving the way one one piece of justice at a time. Um, 
So tell everybody where they can find Farm Girl Flowers, where they can support and be a part of this female-owned and led beautiful company. Thank you. Yes, online, farmgirlflowers.com. We're also, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all the, the normal channels, but to purchase it's at farmgirlflowers.com. Amazing. I really loved connecting. I hope that we connect again. Me too. And again. Me too. I'd love to. This so much fun. So much fun. Christina is awesome. Here are the takeaways. Number one, the secret sauce is just doing it. It's jumping off the edge of that cliff, taking the leap and seeing if it works. Number two, you have to get out of your own way. You have to accept the discomfort along the way and believe that you can handle whatever tomorrow will bring. Number three, return to that startup, throw out the playbook and go back to your roots. Go back to thinking outside the box. Number four, don't overthink your brand. Just tell your story and be who you are. Those are the things that resonate with people. They want to hear your real story. They want to know that there's actually real people behind it. Number Number five, there's no strategy. It's called be scrappy. Number six, investors are not the smartest people in the room. Don't let yourself be treated badly by people who only know spreadsheets. You are good enough. And number seven, clear is kind. You can care about your team without worrying whether they like you. You want them to respect you. Thank you so much for listening. I know that you have a zillion things going on. I appreciate so much that you're here. We have so many good episodes coming up. So please make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, wherever you're listening. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review and a rating because that is such a great way to support us. And if you think of someone who might love this episode, then text them the link or you can share it with them over email or post about it on your Instagram. And finally, if you want to join me in June, I'm doing a retreat. It's called the Limitless Retreat. You can get all the details at kathyheller.com slash retreat. I would love to see you there. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song. Have an amazing weekend. 